Well, we are looking again at Mark's gospel, and today we're considering verses 9 to 11 of chapter 1, so I'd like to invite you to take your Bible and turn to Mark chapter 1. Mark moves from the preaching and baptism of John the Baptist to the baptism of Jesus. Mark says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. Those three verses mark the beginning of Jesus' ministry. All the gospel writers begin Jesus' ministry with his baptism. Jesus had spent 30 years in obscurity, but now he appears. And to make his ministry public, he comes to John the Baptist in order to baptize him. Again, this is something that's not hidden. In fact, the interesting truth about Jesus' baptism is that it has one element that is significantly different than all of the other baptisms of John, as well as baptisms today. And we're going to talk about that today. Our last study marked the coming of John the Baptist. He came proclaiming as a herald before the arrival of the great King of Kings and Lord of Lords. His preaching was a baptism of repentance, which would prepare the way for the Messiah. And so as we begin to look at verses 9 through 11, Mark begins verse 9 by saying, In those days, Matthew 3.1 begins with the same phrase. The New International Version translates that phrase, at that time. And this is actually referring to an unspecified point during John's ministry. John had been baptizing before Jesus' baptism, probably for about six months or longer. And so Jesus comes and he initiates this meeting. And he came when the time was right for him to make his public appearance. We've heard many times in the Gospels, Jesus would say, It is not my time. Well, this is his time. And this is the start of his public preaching ministry. According to Luke 3.23, as I said earlier, he was about 30 years old when he came from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized and to begin his ministry. So the time we see in verse 9 is unspecified. The place... Verse 9 also says, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And we find here in verse 9 two locations mentioned. You had Nazareth and you had the Jordan. He begins with Nazareth because that's where Jesus was from. Matthew 2.23 tells us that Jesus lived there. He was, of course, born in Bethlehem. But because Herod wanted to kill him, the angel told his parents to take him to Egypt. But because Herod wanted to do this, he was afraid. After Herod died, they told him to go to Israel. But when Joseph heard that Herod's son, Archelaus, was reigning in his place, he didn't want to go there. Matthew 2.22 says, Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So Luke 4.16 tells us that Nazareth was where he had been brought up. Now, the interesting thing about Nazareth being mentioned here is that we know very little about the place. 
We do know it was a small village, and it was located in the region of Galilee, and it was about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. It was largely populated by Gentiles. We also know that it had a very unfavorable reputation. We know that because in John 1, verses 45 and 46, it tells us that when Philip found Nathanael and said to him that we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael responded by saying, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But I like how Philip responds. He says, Come and see. The phrase, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? may have been a local proverb expressing jealousy among the towns, or more likely it was speaking of Nazareth as an insignificant village without any, any seeming prophetic importance. Nathaniel knew nothing of any mention of Nazareth with regard to the Messiah and the law of Moses. Albert Barnes says the character of Nazareth was proverbially bad. To be a Galilean or a Nazarene was an expression of decided contempt. And we hear that contempt in John 7.52 with the Pharisees. Nicodemus had just asked them a question and they responded by saying, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. Well, I guess they forgot about their history. 2 Kings 14.25 said Jonah came from Galilee. He was a prophet. They must have also forgot about Micah. Micah was from Galilee. Elijah was from Galilee. Nahum and Hosea was from Galilee. The real ignorance was with the arrogant Pharisees who did not carefully search out the facts as to where Jesus was actually born. And while they accused the crowds of ignorance, they too were really as ignorant. But we know that Nazareth was a small village. It was so obscure that it's not even mentioned in any ancient Jewish literature of the first century. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned by Josephus. It's not mentioned in the Talmud. So Mark accommodates his readers by adding in Galilee so that they would know where Nazareth lies. So Jesus is born in a lowly place. He's born among animals. You remember that? And then he's brought up in an obscure place that no one even heard a prophet coming from. Humble beginnings. Well, Mark says Jesus came to the Jordan River, and this is where John was baptizing. This was at the height of John's ministry. Luke 3.21 says, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. Now I want to remind you that the Greek word for baptize is the word baptizo. And we looked at the meaning last week, but let me just recap it for you. It means to dip. It means to plunge. It means to immerse something into water. You remember the Greeks would use it to identify the dyeing of a garment when they would take the garment and dip the entire garment in the dye inside the water and then pull it back out. We do that today. We have another word for it. It's called tie-dye. This is the commonly recognized and standard meaning of this Greek term. And we find in ancient Greek literature inside as well as outside the Bible that this is how this term is used. The problem is our westernization of this term. That has caused us to lose its significance and rich meaning. But look down at verse 9. It says that Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now you have a preposition there, in. It means in. Doesn't mean beside. Doesn't mean by. Doesn't mean near the river. It's a preposition of motion. 
Jesus and John went in the Jordan. Notice verse 10. Verse 10 says that they came up out of the water. And you have another preposition. It's the word up. It means out of. Not that he came away from it, but he came out of it. So we see him going in the water. He is baptized, and then he is brought out of the water when he's brought back up. So the fact that John and Jesus went into the river and came up out of it strongly suggests immersion. But you know, we find similar language elsewhere. Over in Acts chapter 8, if you'd like to look there, and look at verse 38. This is the story with Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And in verse 38, it says that the Ethiopian eunuch ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away, and the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. So again, same kind of scenario, same kind of language, same kind of situation. And so I would have to say that baptism by immersion is actually the only satisfactory explanation for this narrative. Now we said last time that immersion also best describes the symbolism of our union with Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. Wouldn't make sense for it to be sprinkling. Over in Romans 6, 3, it says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? So you're brought down into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We too are raised up with Christ. Paul also uses that language over in Colossians 2.12. It says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So again, the mode for baptism is best described as immersion, not sprinkling. Sprinkling makes no sense. And the reason why it makes no sense is when it says Jesus came to the Jordan River. If, if they were sprinkling, why would they need so much water? Again, it makes no sense. And as I pointed out last time, I want to point this out again, that baptism doesn't save you. Those passages that make it sound like that doesn't square with other parts of the Bible that indicate that you're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourself, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If we are saved by baptism, that would be a work. That would not be salvation by pure grace. It would be salvation plus works. Because salvation is by grace. So baptism doesn't save you. It symbolizes the work of Christ that I just mentioned in the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It also symbolizes, as I pointed out last time, the cleansing of sin. And we actually do have a verse that talks about that, Acts twenty two sixteen. It says, now, why do you delay? Get up and be baptized and wash away your sins. I believe both the Jews and the Gentiles understood that. To prepare for the Messiah's arrival, you had to repent. You had to be baptized, demonstrating a washing away of your sins and your trust in the coming one for salvation. John understood that. In fact, he understood how important baptism was even when he was preaching a baptism of repentance. And let me just say this very emphatically. We as believers are commanded by Scripture to be baptized. So if you're here this morning and you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you have never been baptized, you need to be baptized. And the reason why you need to do this is out of obedience. You say, well, where does it talk about that? Over in Acts chapter 10, after the Gentiles had received the gift of the Holy Spirit, Peter said in Acts 10, 47, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized, to have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? 
And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to stay on for a few days. So it says he ordered them. The Greek word here for ordered, it means to order with official authorization. And Peter certainly had the authority to command them to be baptized. The word that he uses for ordered, it's used over in Mark 1.44 as well as Matthew 1.24, and it's translated commanded. So it's very clear this is a command. We also find it in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We find it in Genesis 50 and verse 2, where Joseph commands his physicians to embalm his father after his death. And the word command is this same word. Now, when you go over to Matthew 28, 19, where you have the Great Commission, we have a different word used, but it's also a command. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the, the terms make disciple is one word in Greek, mathetuo. And mathetuo is an imperative. An imperative is a command. That's the mood of this verb. So in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, they're commanded to make disciples. And they're to do this by baptizing and by teaching what he taught. So since baptism is seen as a symbol for cleansing or washing away sin, we now come to a problem. And the problem is noted in Matthew's version of this account. So let me have you to turn over to Matthew chapter 3. All four of the gospel writers mention the baptism of Jesus. But it's only in Matthew 3 that we have a greater treatment, and we also have a problem here. We first read that after Jesus arrived from Galilee and coming to John to be baptized, we hear John trying to prevent him from being baptized. It says in verse 1, Now in those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he was saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You go down to verse 6. All Jerusalem had gone out to him, all Judea, all the district of the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him. And now you have in verse 13, Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him. Interesting that the word prevent is used in the imperfect tense. It suggests that John kept trying to prevent him. He kept trying to stop this from happening. In fact, he says in verse 14, I have need to be baptized by you and you're coming to me? Didn't make any sense. John's statement highlights his bewilderment. John had refused to baptize the Pharisees and the Sadducees we know in Matthew 3 because they were totally unworthy of it because they wouldn't repent. And now he was almost equally reluctant to baptize Jesus because he was too worthy of it. And I would just happen to say this, that John's attempt to prevent Jesus from being baptized is a testimony to Jesus' sinlessness. Because Jesus had no need for cleansing. Jesus had no need for repentance. He was the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John 1.29. And he was therefore, as we read this morning in Hebrews 4.15, without sin. So why did he have to be baptized? Well, that's verse 15. And at verse 15, we find where Jesus responds to John's constant hesitation to baptize him and his constant effort to prevent him from being baptized but now we hear him permitting it but it was only after Jesus explained what they needed to do or why they needed to do this and notice what he says verse 15 permitted at this time for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then he permitted him. 
What does it mean to fulfill all righteousness? How was Jesus' baptism a fulfillment of all righteousness? Well, for God's plan to be perfectly fulfilled, it was necessary for Jesus to be baptized and to be baptized specifically by John. Again, John was that forerunner. He was that herald that went out and proclaimed the arrival of the king. This was customary of anybody else heralding before a king. But it does seem that one of the reasons that Jesus submitted to baptism was to give an example of obedience to his followers. He also did that when Peter had asked him on another occasion about the customs or the poll tax. Over in Matthew 17, 24, we hear this, that when they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, well, what do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? And when Peter said from strangers, Jesus said to him, then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw in a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Here is a model of obedience. Just as in that scenario... Jesus was subject to the governing authorities. Here he is subject to the divine authority. This was a demonstration of righteousness. His baptism was his first act of ministry. It was the first step in the redemptive plan that he came to fulfill. Jesus had no sin, but he took his place among those who did. That is key. He who was without sin submitted to a baptism for sinners. And in this act, the Savior of the world took his place among the sinners of the world. This was identification. We find the sinless friend of sinners being sent by the Father, according to Romans 8, 3, in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There was no other way to fulfill all righteousness. So with his baptism, Jesus acknowledged that John's standard of righteousness was valid. And by his actions, he affirmed it was the will of God to which all men are subject. So let me just say this, as I said just a few moments ago, if you've never been baptized, why not? Do you not believe in it? Do you not believe the pattern and the example that's given in Scripture? We have so many examples of baptisms. But the greatest of the examples is Jesus. Jesus didn't need to be baptized. Again, he had no sin. He had no sin to wash away. He had no need for cleansing. He had no need for repentance. Some say his mother told him to do it. Now, you know how moms are. But he says here that we have to fulfill all righteousness. So his baptism had represented his willingness to identify with the sinful people that he came to save. He came in flesh. And he came to redeem flesh. Men, women, children. Crematius, who lived in the third century, was the bishop of Aquilia. He wrote this, Therefore the Lord did not want to be baptized for his own sake, but for ours, in order to fulfill all righteousness. 
Indeed, it's only right that whatever someone instructs another to do, he should first do himself. And since the Lord and Master of the human race had come, he wanted to teach by his example what must be done for disciples to follow their master and for servants their Lord. That was written in the third century. Linsky, he adds, Jesus was baptized by John because he regarded this as the right way in which to enter upon his great office. He, the sinless one, the very Son of God, chose to put himself by the side of all the sinful ones for whom this sacrament of John's was ordained. He thus connects himself with all of John's baptism, for it is his mediation that makes these baptisms truly efficacious for sinners. And thus, by his own baptism, joining himself to all these baptisms of John, he signifies that he is now ready to take upon himself the load of all these sinners, that is, to assume his redemptive office. Well, you say, okay. Then what was the three things that came from his baptism? Well, one was... It signaled the beginning of his public ministry. He publicly identified himself as the promised Messiah, the one who would come to redeem and save from sin. It also publicly publicly revealed his total submission to the sovereign will of God. Everything that Jesus did was by the Father's will. Everything that he said was what the Father told him to say. And last, we would say, his baptism stood as a profound picture of the gospel message that he would preach and fulfill because it pictured his death and the sacrificial atonement for sin and the resurrection from the dead. One commentator believes that this is rooted in the Old Testament priesthood as to why he would have been baptized. He says this, he began his ministry and entered into the Melchizedek priesthood so he could become the high priest and be the holy sacrifice. What happened after he was baptized? Well, verse 10 says, John saw the Spirit descending upon him. Notice what he says. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. Now, I shared with you when we first started this book that this book moves so quickly. You go from one story to another story to another story. In fact, you can see it in the narrative right here. We have verses 9 through 11 that talks about His baptism, but all of a sudden then we go to verses 12 and 13. And how does it begin? Verse 10 begins with immediately. Verse 12 begins with immediately. You go back to verse 18, it begins with immediately. In fact, we find the word immediately used 42 times in Mark's gospel. And as Sproul says, that this is the sureness and inevitability of God's sovereign plan. So again, you move from one to another to another, and all of these are needed. Everything that we have here that the Spirit of God has given to us, as we learn about our Redeemer. Now, beloved, I'm going to challenge you as we continue to go through Mark, and you know it's going to take us some time to get through these 16 chapters, but I want to challenge you when it comes to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we, again, noted in Hebrews 4, when we were reading it this morning, it tells us that Jesus was without sin. We don't know what that's like, because we are sinners. We're not without sin. And everybody we know are sinners. And they're not without sin either. But Jesus was without sin. Jesus Christ, as Mark begins this gospel, is the Son of God. And that phrase right there, as I pointed out when we first began, was a phrase that spoke of divinity. And the Jews understood that. In John eight fifty eight, after he revealed himself as the I am of Exodus three fourteen, what did they sought to do? They 
sought to kill him. Because to them this was blasphemy. And this too would be blasphemy. So we find in verse 10, immediately coming up out of the water, this further supports, by the way, immersion. We find all righteousness has been fulfilled, but then we see something very different happening at this point, and this is what marks the difference between Jesus' baptism and anyone else's. And what is that? Verse 10 says, He saw the heavens opening, and the Spirit like a dove descending upon Him. Certainly no other baptism would produce something like this. Nor would it produce the voice in verse 11. But we're not talking about, as I have indicated to you, just anyone that was being baptized here. This was the Lamb of God. The perfect Lamb of God. And by the way, this is also language taken from Isaiah. Which is very interesting because you remember when we started our study, we were introduced in verses 2 and 3 to Isaiah. But this is language from Isaiah 64, verses 1 and 2. It says this, All that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as fire kindles the brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries that the nations may tremble at your presence. Oh, that you would rend the heavens. The heavens opened. And as they opened, he heard the voice. One commentator says, Just as the veil of the temple was rent in twain to symbolize the perfect access of all men to God, so here the heavens are rent asunder to show how near God is to Jesus and Jesus is to God. Let me just show you that nearness. Let me have you to take your Bible and go to John chapter 1. John's gospel is totally different than the other three. John includes things that the other three do not include. And John begins at a different point. The other gospel writers mention the birth of Jesus, that is Matthew and Luke. Mark doesn't mention the birth. And guess what? John doesn't either. John goes back way before that. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So this beginning, it's not the beginning of creation like Genesis 1.1. This beginning is before there was a beginning. In fact, John is trying to describe to us the indescribable. You could read the phrase back this way, in the beginning, whenever there was a beginning. Now, beginning works for us because you and I need a starting point. You know, we operate on time. And so here, it tells us that whenever this beginning occurred, however you can phrase that, there was the Word. Now, I want you to see something that you can't see usually in the English. You can just hear it in how it's worded. But let me tell you what's behind it. It says, the Word was with God. In Greek, that is proston theon. Proston theon can be translated face to face. What is he saying here? In the beginning, whenever there was a beginning, if we can even call it a beginning, Jesus enjoyed this face-to-face -face relationship with the Father. So, beloved, when He left that face-to-face -face relationship, that was humiliation. Because at this point, He is exalted. But when He becomes flesh, He takes on humiliation. We know that from Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 tells us, verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the question is just simply this. Are you confessing Him as Lord? Are you confessing Him as God? Because He is God in flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, John 1.14. 1 Timothy 3.15 says that He was manifested in the flesh. Some versions read it back this way. God was manifested in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us, as the Father is speaking to the Son, He makes a statement like this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. So how does the Bible regard the Lord Jesus Christ? It regards Him as God. Jesus was 100% man, but He was also 100% God. And He had to take on human flesh in order to redeem human flesh. But Jesus is God. Scripture makes that very clear. I find it very interesting, too, if you look at Luke's account of the baptism, we find that Luke is the only writer that records what Jesus was doing when He came up out of the water. It says in Luke 3.21, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was opened. So that's the part that we don't find in the other Gospels. But we do find this unique thing occurring. And again, this is the inauguration of His earthly ministry. After the heavens are open, Mark says, the Spirit descended, verse 10. He descended like a dove. That doesn't mean that He is a dove. This is actually the only time we find the Holy Spirit represented as a dove. This is figurative language. Like a dove, not a dove. And to the Jewish mind the imagery of a dove would, would tell them something significant. And what was that? The dove represented or was associated with sacrifice. There were five possible elements of a sin sacrifice. You would have a young bull, a male goat, a female goat, a dove or pigeon, or one-tenth of an ephah of flour. The type of animal... And the identity of the animal or the financial situation was really given to the person making the sacrifice. You had bullocks that were sacrificed by the rich. You had lambs that were sacrificed by the middle class. But most people were poor and could only afford a dove or a pigeon. This also connects us to another passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 42 and verse 1 which says this, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. And so again, what we're seeing here is unlike any other baptism, unlike any other baptism that John would do, unlike any of the ritual washings in the Old Testament, unlike any of the cleansing washings of the Levitical priest, This we see the Spirit of God descending on Christ. This is His anointing for service. This is His strength that's given to Him by the Spirit. We hear in Isaiah 61 and verse 1, and this is applied to Jesus as well. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, and freedom to prisoners. 
Jesus' anointing with the Spirit was very unique. And, you know, let me just say something about anointing because we, we hear that in Christian circles. People use that term so loosely, and they say that I got to have the anointing when I preach. Do you know what the anointing is? According to 1 John chapter 2, the anointing is the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you this. Do you have the Holy Spirit? If you're a Christian, you, you do. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit, he's not his. So you have people running around going, we need the anointing, we need the anointing. We need No, we don't. We need to realize we already have him. I believe that the Holy Spirit, in many cases, is the forgotten third member of the Trinity. Because remember, what usually happens in most churches is you have a lot of emphasis on one or two of the members, but usually the third member is forgotten. How important is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the key to your life as a child of God. He's the key to your obedience. He's the key to your ability to kill sin in your life. He's key. And so to ignore Him is to ignore the very key or the very person that you need to rely on and depend upon. We're told in Ephesians 5.18 to be not drunk with wine in which is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. We're told in Galatians 5.16 to walk by the Spirit and you should not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So how important is the Holy Spirit? Extremely important. And His ministry in the life of Jesus, the Messiah, was very unique. We find the Holy Spirit giving Him strength and power in His humanness. We also see that it was the confirming sign to everyone else that was watching. And in all honesty, we only know that John was the only one that could see the Spirit of God descending on Christ. And he tells us in John chapter 1 that he saw the Spirit. Now, you and I don't understand that because the Spirit of God is invisible. How can you see something that's invisible? In fact, we're told that the Father is invisible. The only one who took on any kind of visible form was Christ when he took on human flesh. But Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the great King who's coming. The Lord had called John to announce and to prepare men for. Notice in verse 11, the voice that came out of heaven. Again, another unique feature of his baptism. This anointing was, or this voice rather, was personally directed to Jesus. Not to everybody else. The voice out of the heavens said this, you are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. The Father is speaking to the Son. We find the same phrase over in Matthew 3.17 and Luke 3.22. Also in connection with Jesus' baptism, the language is the same. But why did He do this? I believe that this was a confirmation. Confirmation from the Father. You had no Old Testament sacrifice. You had no... No uh, matter how carefully they had selected that, had ever been truly pleasing to God, only Jesus was the one who was pleasing to God by the sacrifice of Himself on account of our sin. It was not possible to find any animal that did not have some blemish or some imperfection. But understand that the blood of those animals, they, they were only symbolic. Hebrews 10.4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So they were just symbolic of what the Messiah would do. The forgiveness of sin is only possible in Christ. Hebrews 9.12 says, And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, according to Peter, 1 Peter 1.19, was with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. 
And this is how God could say that he was well pleased with his son. Because the father found no kind of imperfection in his son, he now, by his grace, finds no imperfection in those who would trust him for salvation. Galatians 3.27 says it this way, For all of you who have been baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So since we have done that, we have Christ. And according to Philippians 1.9, we have the righteousness that comes from Christ, and it comes on the basis of faith. So, beloved, here's how you're made right with God. When God saves you, He transforms you. Total transformation. And He gives you His righteousness. It's instant. Instantaneous. That's a total transformation. We're told in the gospel is the righteousness of God. We're told that that righteousness is imputed by faith, by those who believe. So we identify in that way. So Jesus now begins his public ministry, hidden for 30 years, but now has appeared for our sake, all historical, all backed up by Scripture. Jesus was born of a virgin. He grew up in Nazareth. And he appeared at the Jordan to be baptized by John. And he did that to fulfill all righteousness and to identify with those whom he would save. So as I said earlier, have you been baptized? If not, then you're disobeying the command to be baptized. And you're also refusing to publicly identify as a follower of Jesus. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, and you hear Matthew's account of John's baptism, it tells us that in verse 6, as they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, they were confessing their sins. I pointed out to you last time that there's no way that this could be paedo-baptism, infant baptism, because babies cannot confess sin, babies cannot repent of sin, babies can't do anything but the limited things that they're able to do at that time. But again, as they came, not Jesus, but everybody else, were confessing their sin. So again, you need to be baptized. You need to obey what Peter said on the day of Pentecost. Repent and be baptized. So again, have you done that? Have you identified with your Savior? Jesus came to identify with you in that regard. And again, as we study through Mark's gospel, we are introduced to the Messiah. We're introduced to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And beloved, before we close, let me just ask you, is that what you believe? That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That Jesus Christ is God. And also, are you confessing your sin? Are you repenting? You know, repentance is a way of life. But when you came to Him, did you come repenting? And embracing Christ as the only means of salvation, as the only one who could save you, as the only one who could forgive you. It says in Romans 10.9 that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And I remind you that the word confess means to say the same thing. So this verse I just read, same word used. Are you saying the same thing that the Scripture says about Jesus, that He's Lord? Are you saying the same thing that the Scripture says that He was raised from the dead. Are you saying the same thing in terms of your sin that the Scripture says about your sin? 
Because, beloved, unless you agree, you can't be saved. Yeah, there are people out there, and I read them, I hear them, they write commentaries too. And sometimes I'm just struck with dumbfoundedness that such a solid organization would allow those books to be in print in their software. But it's there. It is there. And one of the wonderful things that I get to do when I'm studying is to work through that problem. Have you embraced Christ? See your Lord? See your Master? I pray that He is. And if you've never repented and turned your life over to Jesus, I want to invite you to turn your life over to Him right now. Confess Him as Lord. Confess that you believe that God raised Him from the dead. And the Bible says you'll be saved. First, you've got to call on Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So if that described you as we pray, would you call upon Him now? And then when you're done, would you tell me or tell others about it? What has happened, what He's done in your life? That's part of the proclamation that you can't keep silent. Every time Jesus would tell somebody to be silent, you read it at the end of Mark 1, after he healed the leper, he told him to be quiet, don't tell anybody about this. And what did the guy do? He went out and started telling everybody. And the reason why Jesus didn't want him to tell anybody is because of his popularity. By him doing that, it prevented him from going into certain places. In fact, at one point in Mark 1, when his disciples tell him that he is looking, everyone is looking for you, you know what Jesus said? Let's go somewhere else. Because everybody has their own reasons as to why they attach themselves to Jesus. Some attach themselves to Jesus for what they can get from him. Something physical, something in this life. Beloved, attach yourself to Jesus for salvation and let Him take care of the rest. Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time that we've had together in Your Word this morning. We thank You for the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus paid on behalf of our sin. We thank You that He was willing to identify with the sinners that He would save. And we thank You, Lord God, for this story that we've heard this morning. We pray now, Father, for those who have never been baptized, that they would understand the importance of this and desire for that to take place so that they identify in the Lord's death, burial, and resurrection. And also as they proclaim publicly uh, to others that they are followers of Jesus. Lord, may this Lord, be a priority in their heart. We thank you for the word today. We also thank you for your gift of salvation and I pray Lord God that you would save someone this morning and we pray all that in Jesus name